All right, let's pray together, please. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you, Father, for this Lord's Day that you'd gather us here together. I thank you, Father, for this privilege and this honor to be before you and your people, to worship you and to proclaim your word. I pray for your grace, Heavenly Father, for me and all those hearing my words, O Lord. Let it not be my words, but your words. Let not my will, but your will be done, O Lord. Please bless this preaching of the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, it's a great privilege and honor to stand before you this morning to preach here. Uh, Today, the uh, words which I'd like to call your attention to this morning are in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 18. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 18, found in the Old Testament. Hear now the word of the Lord. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. The thesis that I'm bringing forward to you today, that the topic of what I'm trying to preach on, is basically this. Worldly wisdom and knowledge bring sorrow, confusion, and pessimism. But true wisdom and knowledge brings joy and hope. And this wisdom and knowledge and the blessed suffering that they bring in a fallen world find its perfect representation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm attempting to go through a very large swath of topics this morning. So I know I'm not going to be able to touch in depth on all of these things. So if there's any theologians in the audience today, I pray that you'd give me grace that we're only going to really have a survey look at all of these topics here. So, introduction to this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes is found, obviously, in the Old Testament. And now, in the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew rendering of how the scriptures were put together, they divided the Old Testament into three sections. They had the Tanakh, or excuse me, the Torah, which was the law. They had the Nevi'im, which was the prophets. And they had the Ketuvim, which was the writings. Today we are preaching and we are going to be looking into the Ketuvim, Ketuvim, which is the writings. So this is the threefold division of the Old Testament. This is the section that we are in today. The author of Ecclesiastes, many believe that it is Solomon, son of David, king in Israel. There are disputes among conservative scholars to who wrote this book, but I take it to be Solomon. If you want, you can discuss that with me afterwards. I think there's some interesting uh, viewpoints concerning that. But any way that we look at it, the person named in the Hebrew language in this book goes by the name of Kohelet. The book begins with a third-person view, introducing us to the author of the book, and it gives us his name, Kohelet. This name is derived from a Hebrew verb, which means to assemble. The most common translation is preacher, which means to designate someone who gathers people into an assembly to speak to them, as I'm doing to you right now. Another possible translation is teacher. So Kohlet, the preacher or teacher, is the one relaying this message in Ecclesiastes. This book is filled with the statements from Kohlet that seem to indicate an unorthodox view of life. It is believed by some that this is why there's a dispute over the authorship. But in the end, there's an orthodox rendering of the truth that 
All things being considered, fear God and keep His commandments. That is how the book ends. So in the light of this statement, we take that positive statement to interpret the negative ones. Commentator, commentator Michael Eaton remarks that Ecclesiastes is an essay in apologetics which defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing out the grimness of the alternatives. And we're going to look at the grim alternatives in just a second. The next thing I want you to look at is the meaning of the word habel, which is where we get the English word vanity. This book is famous for the saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is what Ecclesiastes is known for, speaking of the vanity of life. This word habel, the basic meaning is breath. Temporarily, it stresses the idea that something is fleeting or transient like breath. Another nuance of habel's meaning is incomprehensible in the sense that life is not just hard to understand or altogether impossible to understand. Here the idea of the word habel is expressed by the English translation vanity and the sense of futile, purposeless, or meaninglessness. The second thing I'd like to turn your attention to is the fact that much of this book is said to happen and proclaim things that happen under the sun. Meaning all things done and seen in this world only with this current, uh, current earthly life in view, with no recourse to divine revelation or orientation. So when you hear oh, under the sun, Solomon or Kohelet is speaking in a sense of not giving heed to the eternal reality of things, but seeing everything as if you would see them from under the sun, only taking humanity into account. That is where we get the idea of vanity, of vanities. So again, let's turn to the text that I'm speaking on today. Ecclesiastes 1.18 For in much wisdom, or the Hebrew word for wisdom is hachmah, is much grief. And he that increases knowledge, or da'ah, increases sorrow. Any seasoned researcher in history, geopolitics, economics, knows something of this. The corruption in the governments worldwide, the never-ending ethnic hostilities and wars, the theft and the greed, the vast poverty in this world, the natural disasters that we can do almost nothing about, the famines, the diseases that continue to baffle the smartest doctors on how to cure them, the impending knowledge of one's own death and the death of all their loved ones. This constant failure throughout history, the darkness of human nature and the horrible atrocities that human, the human race has perpetrated towards one another and continues to do so, the utter futility to fix it or stop it by even the brightest and most gifted leaders. That is what Solomon is addressing. And we see this now in our day. This is true in our day. The complete, utter bankruptcy of the human race. And if you look at it, under the sun, the human race is doomed and there's nothing we can do about it. I give you an example. Leonardo da Vinci, born 1452 to 1519, he died. He was a chemist, musician, architect, anonymist, botanist, mechanical engineer, and an artist. He was the embodiment of the Renaissance man. He could do almost everything and do it well. Yet, what was the fate of Leonardo da Vinci? 
Leonardo, the humanistic man, meaning man starting at them himself and making himself the measure of all things, failed both as the mathematician and also as the artist. He could not paint the universal. He could not find the unifying factor in life out of his observations of the particulars. He couldn't do it. He ended up seeing that life was vain and meaningless. When King Francis I of France brought Leonardo da Vinci to the court, the French court, as an old man, Leonardo was in despondency, utter depression. As a man thinketh, so he is. And humanism had already begun to show that pessimism was its natural conclusion. The scriptures speak well to this in the book of Jeremiah. It says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So the Lord pronounced a curse upon those who trust in other people and their own strength. And that is worked out in history, as we see, and as in the scriptures we are reading now. Yet from the time when we wake up to the time when we fall asleep, the world is seducing us and speaking to us of these vanities. Have you ever thought what the definition of a muse is? Or just what muse means, actually? To muse is engage in thought, or to be absorbed in one's thought, or to meditate deeply. So to amuse means to not meditate, to not think, to not engage in deep thought. We spend billions of dollars each year as a culture so that we don't have to think deeply about things, to amuse ourselves. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress points this out very eloquently, I believe. If you're not familiar with the story, Christian is the story of Christian on a pilgrimage to the celestial city. And the character Christian is followed by his friend Faithful. They approach a town, town called Vanity, and in that town there is a fair, kept called Vanity Fair. It is kept all the year long. It beareth the name Vanity Fair, because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity, and also because all that is sold there and all who go there are vain. It's interesting that John Bunyan saw something in the scriptures here. I think he was thinking of this passage in Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and become vain? They have become chabel. You are what you behold. I think John Bunyan saw this. If you go after vanity, if you understand and you seek after the vainness of this world and all that it offers you, you become meaningless yourselves. So the scripture says the meaninglessness that you go after becomes who you are. There is an antidote to this, and we'll look at that. We see 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So you can behold vanity and become vain, or you can behold the Lord in His glory and advance in sanctification and glory. 
Those are the two options. Commentator Matthew Henry on this verse states, Solomon tried all things and found them vanity. He found his searches after knowledge weariness, not only to the flesh, but to the mind. The more he saw of the works done under the sun, the more he saw their vanity. And the sight often vexed his spirit. He could neither gain that satisfaction to himself, nor do that good to others, which he expected. Even the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom discovered man's wickedness and misery, so that the more he knew, the more he saw a cause to lament and mourn. John Gill offers an interesting uh, look into this verse as well. There is indeed wisdom and knowledge opposite to this, and infinitely more excellent, in which the more it is increased, the more joy and comfort it brings. And this is the wisdom in the hidden part, a spiritual and experimental knowledge of Christ and of God in Christ and of divine and evangelical truths. But short of this knowledge, there is no peace, comfort, and happiness. So what is this true wisdom and knowledge? Well, let's look what the scriptures say. True knowledge defined. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. This is not a craven fear of God. This is a reverent fear, a disposition of adoration and worship to the Lord. That is the fear of the Lord spoken here. R.C. Sproul has said that the greatest need for every human being, believer or unbeliever, is to know God. The knowledge of the holy is understanding, as it says in the second half of this book, the second half of this verse. John MacArthur remarks, The fear of God is directly correlated to how much you know about Him. The more you've imbibed or taken in of the revelations of God's character on the pages of Holy Scripture, the more glorious and beautiful He becomes, the more you will have awe and you will fear and worship and adore Him. So in my definition... Going off of the study of Scripture, I say true knowledge is to understand who God is and what He has done, and to understand who we are and what we have done, and to understand the grace which we are promised and given to be transformed into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. And all that falls short of that in our lives, we should repudiate and regard as vanity in comparison. Does that sound like a bold statement? Maybe a little intense? Need a, need a text? Philippians 3.8 Yea, doubtless, this is Paul speaking. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I might win Christ. That's how Paul saw it. Some may ask, aren't you envious, though, of the prospering world and all the great things and the materials and the advancement that they have? And I say, not one of them. From dust you are, from dust you shall return, says the Scriptures. We've seen it's all vanity. I don't envy them, I pity them. It says in the Psalms, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Does that psalm describe you today? That you'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God 
than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Fleeting, as we sang, is the worldling's pleasure. They know nothing of solid joys and lasting treasures. Peter adds this in 1 Peter 1.24, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Jeremiah adds this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I, the Lord, who exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. If you want to boast in something, don't boast in your riches and how much you have, or your noble birth, or your wisdom, or your strength. The one thing the Lord says to boast in is boast in how much you know Him. That's what you should boast in. Back to what Paul is saying in Philippians 3. That I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. In other words, I'm not technically exhorting you to know the Word of God better today. I'm exhorting you to understand and know the God of the Word more today. Jesus declares this in His high priestly prayer in John 17.3. And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. This is eternal life, the true knowledge of all that God is in Jesus Christ. That is true knowledge. Paul prays this prayer for the Colossians. In Colossians 1, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, that we, we desire that you might be filled with knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The preeminence of understanding and wisdom and knowledge Paul begins, it goes on further, we'll see more. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing on that you put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its cre- his cre- your Creator. Renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ, our Creator. James White comments, Christianity is not Gnostic, where the gnosis or the knowledge is goal, but the gnosis is a means or a tool by the one who created it for us to be used, to use. There is no Christianity without Christ's self-revelation to his people. That's why doctrine is so important. Doctrine or, or teaching is so important. That's why churches die when they abandon sound doctrine. They abandon recognition that it is God's intention that his people know who he is. We cannot glorify God as we ought without the knowledge according to truth. I'm not exhorting you today to a sheer intellectual knowledge either. I think what we'll look at here uh, in a second is the whole concept of mind, heart, and will. This, This true knowledge should be something that transforms your whole soul. It works its way into your heart and into your will. And you go out and do these things. You rejoice in them. You know it. You love it. And you do it. Romans 6.17, this is, I think, the passage that I think lays out that functioning of your soul and mind, heart, and will. But God be thanked 
that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of sound doctrine that was delivered to you. We are mind, heart, and will. That is our, our, the function of our soul among, amongst our body. So we need to have true knowledge. That's where it starts. That's, that's the first and foremost thing. We have to understand who God is in the Scriptures rightly, and then that knowledge works its way into our hearts, and we love it and rejoice in these truths. We believe it, and then we go and do it. Any knowledge short of that is not true knowledge. So this is not intellectualism I'm preaching here today. As a matter of fact, knowledge without the right feelings towards God is devilish. You need a text for that? James 2.19 Thou believes that there is a God, or that there is one God. Thou dost well. The devils also believe and tremble. Satan and the demonic powers of this evil world know truth about God. They know true doctrine about God. But the difference is they hate it. They don't rejoice in it. And they don't do His will. So it's more than just right knowledge. The devils have that. It's not about theology. It's, it's not just about theology. It's also about spiritual experience and reality. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And we look on the will here. So we have that heart. We want to know these things that surpass knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God, and that we want to do these things. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is a very powerful verse. It's, it's not that we just love these things and we know God, but we are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is what we are exhorted to do. And also true knowledge brings sorrow and conviction in this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And who are these people that the blessing is put upon? Those are the people that are mourning over their sin. They see who they are in the light of God. They understand true knowledge. They're humble. They're poor in spirit because they see what they really are. So true knowledge brings joy. We know who God is. And it also brings sorrow because we know who we are in comparison to Him. We say with Isaiah, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And in Isaiah's vision, in Isaiah 6, as he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said these words, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That man knew something of true knowledge. He saw his utter bankruptcy before God, and he prostrated himself. When Jesus performed the miracle for his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, where they caught so, much, so many fish that the nets broke, in, I believe it's Luke's Gospel, Peter turns to him after that and says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That is true knowledge. So wisdom. So we're, we've looked at knowledge. Now what is this, what's true wisdom? Well, I'm going to take a, a quote from the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The wisdom of God is that attribute according to which he arranges his purposes and his plans 
and means and brings forth the results that he desires perfectly. Wisdom is that thing that enables a person to see around a situation that they might arrive at the most desirable result. There is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. There are many people who have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. Wisdom is the capacity to make use of your knowledge. We see it in, in creation, and the characteristic of God's wisdom in nature, in the simplicity and the pattern in which He works. We see it in the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way He dismantles His opponents, the false teaching, and how brilliantly He answers the questions of those who come against and are naysaying Him. The greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, was, takes up but a few pages in Scripture. If the mind isn't clear and able to extract the principles It is a sign of confusion. Applying truth carefully to everyday life, that is wisdom. And wisdom is not only an intellectual power, it's also a moral quality. It's right to be wise. It's good. You should be wise. It's a moral, ethical attribute to be wise. Paul again prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That is what the prayer is. Spirit of revelation and wisdom and the knowledge of Him. That is my prayer for all of you as I was praying before this today. And we turn now to the preeminent example of all these things. True knowledge, true wisdom, true sorrow. The preeminent example is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.3 In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm going to repeat that. and I tell you to go home and look at that again and again and just let that flow through your head. In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus Christ. He was anointed with joy and gladness above His fellows. As a little child at 12 years old, in Luke chapter 2 we see, And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors the teachers, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Again, we see in Matthew 7, as he's an adult. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he, thought, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He was wise beyond all. He had all wisdom and knowledge. Never a man spoke like that man, as the centurion said as they listened to him preach. Incredible wisdom. And I don't have the time to go through all of the Lord's wise sayings, for this would take hours upon hours to do. But this is what defined him. Wisdom knowledge and joy and suffering. Matthew 17, 17. Jesus responding to a faithless people, clinging to him and wanting material things, not understanding his purpose. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Sense and feel the deep grief in that statement, that the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, he arrives and Mary and Martha greet him in their 
terribly sorry and sad. Lazarus has died. And Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. It wasn't because Lazarus was dead and he couldn't raise him. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He was the creator of Lazarus. He was going to bring him back to life. But he wept because he saw the sorrow and the sadness that it brought upon Mary and Martha. And he wept with those who he weeped with those who weep. He was perfect. He carried our burdens. He had compassion on those who were sorry and sad. In Matthew 23, as he approaches Jerusalem before he is crucified, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets and stones them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And in Luke's gospel, it says Jesus beheld the city and he wept over it. He wept bitterly over the sin, over the vanity of the, of the Israelites, over the death and destruction and misery of the world, all the sin. He wept over it. He understood the vanity and the sinfulness of this world. Isaiah 53, in a beautiful messianic description of Jesus Christ, He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And we see in the garden of Gethsemane before he dies, the intense grief that the Lord bared. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou will. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Hematidrosis is a rare but very real medical condition where one sweat will contain blood. The sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels. These vessels can constrict and then dilate to the point of rupture, where the blood will then effuse into the sweat glands. What is its cause? What is the medical cause for this? Extreme anguish. In the other gospel accounts, we see Jesus' level of anguish. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He suffered more than any other human being suffered. He was in agony beyond anything we can imagine. Yet, he was truly the most wise and joyful and and knowledgeable. Yet, he was a man of sorrows. And we see that all displayed on the cross at Golgotha. He cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He suffered more than any other. The only wise and most knowledgeable... But in this hour of darkness on the cross, in the perfect righteous Lord, we see the manifold wisdom of God and the deliverance of sinful people from this vain world, from our vain ways, and from our hopeless existence. We see in the cross the wisdom of God reversing everything on its head. In the Greek, it's the eukagilion, the gospel, the good news. How can God forgive me if He is just? How can He 
dwell and, and, and uh, fellowship amongst sinful people if he is holy and righteous? And the answer is the double imputation that happens at the cross. Bodhi Baucom explains perfectly here. We are born in sin in a vain world. And we commit evil deeds. And we are under the judgment of wrath of God and our sinful deeds flow from our sinful nature. We have a problem that we can't fix. So God sends His Son, born of a virgin. He is righteous and He keeps the whole law so that He actually is righteous. Which is important because He can now impute that righteousness to me. And I need perfect righteousness to stand before a holy God. And He has kept everything as perfect. But not only that, I have another problem. I have sinned and I owe something for that sin. So in his act of obedience, he keeps the law, and in his passive obedience, he receives a death that he did not owe. Therefore, my sin can be imputed to him. And it is in this double imputation, our, his righteousness to us and our sin to him and punished on the cross, that God can be both just and the justifier of, him, or of those who believe in Jesus. Those who put their faith in Jesus can be delivered from this vain world. Our sins can be cleansed forever by the blood of Jesus Christ. And His perfect righteousness can be brought to us if we believe that instrument of faith, that clinging hold of Jesus, that trusting in Him and this gospel. That is the wisdom of God in uh, delivering us from this vain world. We see in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We can't justify ourselves. We can't fix our problem. We can't do it. It's a vain world. It's meaningless apart from this. This is the everlasting gospel. As Brother Chris read this morning, 1 Corinthians, it correlates perfectly with this. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The wisdom of this world says we as humans can save ourselves. We can do it. We can overcome. We can overcome all these things. We can become gods. We can we can be delivered from death. We can live forever. But that's not true. That's foolishness. But God, in His wisdom, comes and reverses everything on its head. But after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I urge you, if you do not know the Lord, if you have not trusted in Jesus today, I urge you to repent and believe this day. He is a faithful Savior. He will deliver you from this habel, this vanity that's in this world. And for all of us who are Christian this morning, our followers of Christ who declare that Christ is within us and we are in Christ, Christ lives in you, that's what Paul says, all that are Christian can say Christ lives in you. 
How can we not display some of these attributes of Jesus Christ? Of wisdom and knowledge and, and, and joy and, and the persecution and suffering that this wisdom and knowledge bring. Paul says, All that desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, And whosoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is a call for all true Christians. Please hear me out. If you're not a Christian, this is not something you can do. You can't earn your salvation. This is an impossible life to live unless you're a bud, blot, child of the living God, born again by His Spirit. How did Jesus overcome? Well, He was God in the flesh, but the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and despised the shame. The joy of the Lord is ever our strength. That is how we overcome. This true wisdom and knowledge does not deliver us from sorrow and grief, but it gives us the power to overcome it and to see it as a blessed sorrow and grief, a joyous, a happy sorrow and grief. Hebrews 4.15 For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. As, first, as John says, For everyone who has been born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That is the wisdom and righteousness of God. The faith in Jesus Christ delivers from all these things. I have five closing applications. First off, the gospel call again. Jesus stands before you. His Death and resurrection is perfect righteousness and that free offer to all here to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Be delivered from this vain world and from our attempts to do anything to save ourselves. If this vain chasing after the wind describes you today and not the blessed knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I urge you to repent and trust in Christ. But those of us who are called and Christian and believing on Jesus Christ as paupers, as nothing, as people that have seen our sin and are mournful and poor in spirit and clinging to Him. I have five applications. One, we need to pray for the illuminating ministry of God's Spirit. We need to be prayed that we be clothed with power from on high. Waking up in the morning and seeking Him. Jesus arose early in the morning to seek the Lord. We need to pray and make it our primary of utmost importance, goal is to seek the Lord. If I'm going to do one thing today, I'm going to seek Him and I'm going to pray to Him. I'm going to call out for Him. As it says, the psalmist prays, Open my eyes that I might see wonders out of your law. Incline my heart to your testimony and not towards selfish gain. Enlarge my heart that I might run in the path of thy commandments. Is a, a crying out in Proverbs. This is, this is how it's described to be praying for this illumination and praying for this enlightenment from the Lord. It says, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Cry out, lift up your voice for understanding. That is first and foremost. What we need is prayer. Prayer, begging the Lord to reveal these things to us. 
Second point of application. You will then also seek to find the time to gain more knowledge of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Being alone with God. Having time, not just ten-minute devotionals, but seeking Him in earnest and, and wanting and, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and spending time with the Lord, away from distractions from other people and from all these things that are so easy to distract us. The vanity of the world that you spend time alone with them. All of this preaching, all the preaching you've ever heard, all the teaching, all of the fellowshipping, all of the Christian activities will mean nothing unless you spend time with our God. Three, you will be eager to find opportunities to obey and apply that truth which, which you have learned and share it with others. Psalm 119, 100. I understand more than the aged, for I have kept your precepts. If you want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, you need to become obedient to the Scriptures that you already do understand. You need to be living out what you already know from the Scripture. Then the Spirit of God will be pleased to give you more insight. In other words, obedience is an opener of the eyes. Not the opener, but it is an opener of the eyes. Rather than seeking to deepen our understanding in order to obey, we need to obey in order that we might have deeper understanding. It's a holiness... I thought it's like a holiness feedback loop. You, 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 get, you, you hear this true knowledge and you, you understand it. It comes into your mind and you love it and then you go and do it. And then the more you do, the more you understand. And then the more you love and then the more you do and then the more you understand. It just keeps it's a feedback loop that just keeps happening. You grow in the sanctification and wisdom and knowledge and God continues to advance you. That's how it works. Jesus said to those his disciples before he died, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. They couldn't bear it. They weren't living up to the light that they had. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. You need to be faithful in what you have been given. Number four, we need to seek the help of skilled teachers which Christ gave to the church. In Ephesians 4.11, Christ leaves many gifts to the church as people on earth, and they are, some of them are preachers and teachers. These are gifts to the church, gifts to God's people. You should seek the help of these brethren because they are a gift to you to help you understand. As Jeremiah 3.15, prophesying in the Old Testament, And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Hosea says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If we don't understand the Lord, we will be destroyed. We, it is our folly to not seek and lay hold of these gifts. And finally, 5.5, 5, we will rejoice when this vain world, this world of Habel, reacts as the Bible says it will react, as we grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted the prophets before you. 
We should, another translation says, leap for joy when we are persecuted because we know that we have a great reward in heaven. We know we are truly the children of God, that we have this true wisdom and knowledge. Closing quote here from Oswald Chambers, from my utmost for his highest. If God has made your cup sweet, drink it with grace. Or even if he's made it bitter, drink it in communion with him. If the providential will of God means a hard and difficult time for you, go through it. You must go through the trial before you have any right to pronounce a verdict. Because by going through the trial, you learn to know God better. God is working in us to reach His highest goals until our purposes and His purposes become one. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank You for this grace today. Thank you for this great opportunity, Lord. And I pray that this word spoken, O Lord, would not be words just simply that I have spoken, but words truly that you have blessed. Please give grace to the hearers and the listeners today, O Lord. I pray these things would be brought forth. Your word goes forth, as it says in Isaiah, and it will not return unto you void, and you are watching over your word to perform it, Lord. And we trust you for this, O Lord. Let your will be done, Lord. Please bless our time of fellowship. Please bless our time of meditation upon these truths, O Lord. I need to hear this as much as anyone else in this audience today, O Lord. Let your will be done, Lord. Thank you for all of your glorious grace to us, O Lord. Let Jesus Christ be extolled and magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. In the name of Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen.